Let's turn together in God's word to the book of Numbers, chapter 23. We'll begin reading at verse 27. And we'll read into chapter 24 and read through verse 11. Our text will be verses 5 through 9. Children, remember the story of Balak and Balaam? The Israelites are on the exodus, traveling to the land of Canaan. They're getting close to the point where they will enter the land of Canaan. They've been destroying all the enemies that are in their path. And Balak, the king of Moab, sees trouble for him in Moab and thinks, I have to do something to try to stop these Israelites or they're going to overrun me too. And so he thinks to hire Balaam to get God to curse his people and there to create a wedge between God and his people so that he can defeat Israel, he thinks. Remember that Balaam tried three times to get God to curse his people. Our text tonight will be the third of those attempts. Numbers 23, beginning at verse 27. And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. Peradventure it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. And Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor that looketh toward Jeshimon. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! As the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of line aloes which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. He shall eat up the nations his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies. And behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore now, flee thou, therefore now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. 
And Balaam said unto Balak, Spake I not also to thy messengers which thou sentest unto me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of mine own hand. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. To that point we read the inspired word of Jehovah God. The text tonight is verses 5 through 9. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! As the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as trees of lying aloes which the Lord hath planted, and as cedars beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. Beloved of God, at the beginning of our text, Balak, the king of Moab, is quite frustrated. Two times now, he has expected that Balaam, the internationally renowned sorcerer that he is, would be able to grasp a hold of Jehovah, corral Jehovah under his own control, and force God to curse his people allowing Moab to defeat Israel. But God will not be controlled. Instead, God controls Balaam and uses Balaam as his own prophet to deliver the prophetic blessing of Jehovah God himself upon his people. Balak decides to try one more time, third time's a charm. He has a lot of time and money invested into this situation after all. So he brings Balaam up to a mount called Peor, from which Balaam can see all of Israel encamped below, and he thinks maybe from this spot, in his, his pagan superstitious way of thinking, this was a place that was known to be a very spiritual place upon which worship to various gods was made. Maybe from this spot, Balaam will be able to gain control of Jehovah and cause him to curse his people. And yet, just as the two times previously, so this time, the Spirit of God comes upon Balaam, unregenerate, though he is and remains, And Balaam delivers the message of blessing upon Israel. Only this time, it comes through Balaam in such a way that Balaam himself is seeing the amazing character of what God is declaring over Israel. So he gives this message of God in an exclamation. How goodly are thy tents! O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. God's message to his people. 
how God sees the faithful homes of his people. And the message that I pray is an encouragement to faithful homes in the church here tonight as we take up this text under the theme, Goodly Tents. Goodly Tents. We'll notice first the meaning of that, second the reason for it, and third the result of Goodly Tents in the church. The meaning, the reason, and the result. Just like in the previous two times, God gives Balaam not merely to see the Israel that was down below there with his physical eye, but to see the people of God as they are ideally, truly the Israel of God. To see spiritual things for a moment. To see the the faithful people of God in any time, in any place, really, their character, especially their spiritual character in their homes. The fact that Balaam is seeing something more than what can be seen with the natural eye is proved to you if you think just a moment about what Balaam says he's seeing in comparison to what he is seeing with his physical eyes because they're not the same. I read in verse 2 that Balaam lifted up his physical eyes and looked down upon Israel, abiding in his tents according to his tribes down below there. But then when he speaks about what he's seeing, he cries out with this exclamation, how goodly are your tents, O Israel, and your tabernacles, O Jacob, where the word goodly means how pleasing, how lovely, how beautiful, how unique, and how strong, and what in the wide world would Balaam have been seeing with his physical eye that would ever have made him issue such an exclamation as that? Nothing. Israel's tents were nothing out of the ordinary. In fact, if anything, they were run down. They'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Their tents were old and they were dusty and dirty and and wore out. They were all organized around the tabernacle nicely, to be sure. But nothing that could be seen with the naked eye would ever lead somebody to cry out of all the tents that I've ever seen in my life. Now these are some tents. Here are some great tents that shows you that Balaam is seeing something more that can be seen with the physical eye. And then what about the setting in which those tents are? Balaam we read in verse 2, set his face toward the wilderness where those tents were. With his physical eye, what he saw down below there was all of the tents of Israel, two million people, and all of their tents set up in a, a dry desert wilderness. Chapter 23, verse 28 calls it Jeshimon, which means a wasteland. And yet, When Balaam speaks about what he's seeing, he says, I see all of these glorious tents in the middle of water, with running water, rivers and and lakes, all throughout the camp. Verse 6, 
as gardens by the riverside, as trees of aloes and cedars by the water. He cries out that he's seeing a a valley full of water in which all these tents are to be found. The only explanation is what we read in verse 2, that the Spirit came upon him. So that verse 4, in a trance, he sees Israel, the church, as she is ideally, spiritually, faithfully. He has his eyes opened, as he himself says, Balaam, the son of Beor, the man whose eyes are open, hath said, Well, what does he see exactly? What is all of this? The main thing that he is seeing with this spiritual eye momentarily is the pleasantness, the loveliness, the uniqueness, and the beauty to God himself of faithful covenant homes in Israel. How goodly are your tents, O Israel, where the tents stand for the home and the home life that is within that tent. He describes that with four images in verse 6. Notice that the word as is used four times in verse 6. These tents are as this, as this, as this, as this. First, these tents are as valleys spread forth. The tents or the the homes and the home life is as valleys spread forth. And that's not talking now about the setting in which the tents are in, but the tents themselves as valleys spread forth. What's a valley known for? It's known for its growth, its lushness in comparison to the barren hillsides that are around the valley. Second, these tents or homes are as gardens. Verse 6, lush gardens full of pleasing flowers and green grass, well watered. Third, These tents or homes are as trees of line aloes in verse 6. A line aloe is a specific kind of tree that gives off off a very sweet-smelling fragrance that's pleasing. And then fourth, these tents are as cedar trees, great, strong, mighty trees that are growing up. This, if you take it all together, is a description of the spiritual strength vitality, fruitfulness, loveliness of the covenantal home. What a lovely, goodly, pleasing thing is a home in covenant with God, beloved. The covenant home is an absolute miracle of God's grace. It's a countercultural wonder. It's a taste of heaven in the midst of the waste howling wilderness of this world. The Christian home. The Christian home where husband and wife are faithful to one another in Jesus Christ because they look up 
and see a Christ who is faithful to them. And in spite of difficulties, they are faithful to each other. Where children are growing under the means of grace and under the faithful parental instruction by the power of the Holy Spirit or the word of God rules in that home so that thoughts are being taken captive unto that word word of the Lord Jesus Christ there there is fruit that is growing in that home spiritual fruit fruit of sorrow for sin, repentance over sin, seeing the sinfulness of sin, what sin really is, that it's to him, before him, an offense to him, an affront to him, this God who has loved me and given himself unto me. Those fruits growing in children who don't have that naturally within themselves, but starting to understand what sin really is, Children that are learning not to suck everything around them into themselves only, but to give out of themselves unto one another and others. Covenant home where there's a bond of of true love in God's grace. Faithfulness. Or as the sweet smelling fragrance of family worship is rising up to Jehovah God in the singing of the songs of Zion. Psalm 118, verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. You think of the strength of sons and daughters and of mother and father growing there like cedars unto Jehovah in the midst of the wilderness of this world, where the priorities in this home are not the priorities of the world, where the view of the world in this home is not the view of the world outside in the, uh, in the world of unbelief, where there's a mentality that preserves, that is safe. And don't only, beloved, think of homes, the husband and a wife and children, unmarried Single members' homes is still a covenant home. It falls under this, the beauty of a covenant home. Think about what happens in the home of a single person in the midst of this world. You hardly even want to mention the kinds of things that happens there. But in the home of a faithful single person, consecration to Jehovah God, prayer rising up, to the Lord Jesus Christ, home of difficulty even, struggle in a marriage, but where there's faithfulness to the Lord and to each other in spite of difficulty. Upward, Godward, worship, Humility, getting on one's knees and confessing, God be merciful to me, the sinner, not her, not him, me, the sinner. In a unity, in a bond. 
This is a shocking contrast to anything that Balaam has ever seen before in his entire life. He's never seen anything like this. Because paganism, you understand, is entirely destructive of marriage and of home life. It is still today, though that paganism flies under the banner of enlightened civilization. Part of the worship of idols back then was, of course, sexual immorality, which completely destroyed any sense of home and family. Part of the worship of idols was often the offering of children as sacrifices to those idols. This was the home life of paganism. And Balaam is seeing something in such stark contrast to this. And he's seeing how true it is that the curse of the Lord is in the habitation of the wicked. Proverbs 3 verse 33. And how true it is the other side of that verse. That the blessing of Jehovah is in the habitation of the just. And it's astounding to him. So that he exclaims about it. How goodly are your tents. I've never seen anything like this in all the world. What is this? After it's over. It's going to go back to seeking the destruction of Israel, of course. But how is he going to do that in the next chapter? He's going to come to Balak and he's going to say to Balak, you want to destroy this people? You want to separate this people from their God? You attack their homes. That's their strength. That's what makes them what they are. You destroy that, you will have them. But for a moment here, he sees as God sees, and he speaks as God speaks. Goodly, pleasant, lovely are your tents, O Israel. Tents, plural. Tabernacles, plural. Gardens, plural. Cedars, line aloes. Seeing something of the church, isn't he? The tents gathered together, the homes together, in the camp, together in the life of the church. And what about that setting? What about that water? Water is flowing right there in the camp. That water that's feeding these tents so that they grow up like gardens, lush gardens together. That water, beloved, is a picture of the means of grace that comes in the church and that feeds the homes that gather together in the church so that by this powerful grace those homes rise up lush, spiritually vital to the glory of Jehovah God. Balaam does not see. Well, there's the camp of Israel down there. And and I see this, this one This one tent over there. And these tents are are not so good, but 
but how lovely is that tent over there? But how lovely are your tents together? And Balaam does not say, there's this, there's this one tent over there, and I, I see a river flowing over there by it. Over here in the camp, it's all dry. But over there, how lovely is that tent and the, and the river that's running beside it, but the river is flowing here. It's something like Psalm 128, isn't it? The first four verses of that chapter are all about the covenant home, the goodly tent, godly family life in the home. And then verse 5 says, The Lord shall bless thee this way out of Zion. Not disconnected from the church, but out of Zion. Not alone, but together. And it's lovely, beautiful, pleasing. You have an eye for beauty? True beauty? Photographer's eye for beauty? Can you see this beauty? We'd like to go on vacation, go to nice, beautiful places, see grand vistas before us, and that's a good thing, and exclaim to Jehovah God, how lovely, how beautiful is this mountain range that thou hast made. How lovely, how marvelous is this great canyon. There are very few more beautiful things that God has made than a faithful covenant home. If you see it, it'll take your breath away. To see it is to cry out about it. How goodly are your tents, O Israel, your tabernacles? Of course, there's nothing to see there with the, the naked eye. Just like there was nothing really to see with respect to Israel's tents outwardly. There's nothing really to see with respect to the homes of God's faithful people. The houses... From an outward physical point of view, you can't drive by and and say, well, there's a covenant home because I see the shutters are nicely painted or, or whatever else you might be. With the eye of faith, this is marvelous. Is there anything like this in all the world? How pleasant, how beautiful. Think about it. Think about it in contrast to the homes of those who are outside of Jesus Christ, where husband and wife use each other merely for their own personal gain. And if you aren't entirely unto me, then I've had it with you. And maybe you're on second or third or fourth husband or wife. Or increasingly, 
And the younger generations aren't even slapping the facade of marriage over it anymore, just going into whatever kind of relationship it is, just saying. We're just going to use each other for a while and we get tired of it, move on, because I'm in this for me. In a recent article in Time magazine, we're told that the younger generation, millennial generation, isn't even getting married anymore. And the reason, according to the article, is this. Quote, because marriage as an institution itself is becoming less highly regarded. In fact, many term marriage as an institution barbaric, end quote. The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s has come entirely home into this culture. Our home and family life is utterly utterly destroyed at the paganism of this age and the children beloved think about the children still being offered as a burnt sacrifice to the idols of the day the idol of self the idol of me I will do what I want even if the child suffers for it and think about Jehovah God as he looks down from above and scans his eyes across all of the tents, all of the homes over all the world. And he sets his eyes upon faithful covenant homes. And it's pleasing to him. And it's lovely to him. And it's a contrast to him because the antithesis is so sharp and so clear nowhere else than here in home and family life is this your tent well there's sin to be sure to be sure Sin in the most faithful of covenant homes. But he sees. He sees his own work there. It's pleasing to him. If you're home, your tent. There's nothing different from the homes of those outside of Jesus Christ. Then you'd better wonder if you are part of this Israel of God at all. And humble yourself before him. Bow to him. Come with words of repentance. God, be merciful to me. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ who can make a home like this. Come humble to him. Lord, give me such a home. But even in the homes of God's people, beloved, even in the faithful covenant home, hard for us to even think 
about our home this way. Sometimes it feels like you're just limping along, doesn't it? There's things with the kids. They see sins and patterns of sins in their lives and and you pray and you pray and you discipline and it doesn't seem to to change this in them. And, And the worries and the fears and and mom spends herself, perhaps, and wonders, is any of this doing any good? And, and dad is tired, and he, he seeks to labor faithfully, and the more faithfully he labors, he wonders, is anything happening here? And, and sometimes you feel like you're just crawling, limping one day after another. Is anything being accomplished here? And yet he sees. He sees his own image in that home. He sees Father reflecting the fatherhood of God there in that home. He sees children reflecting something of the sonship of the Son. He sees Mother reflecting something of the bonding and nurturing nature of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand how unmistakably different, how entirely antithetical is a faithful covenant home from the homes of this world? He sees, Dad, your leading of your home in godliness. You're seeking to establish the rule of the word, King Jesus' own rule in this home. He sees your prayers and your care for your home. He sees, Mom, your tireless labor, nurture and love and what you've given up to give your life over to your home. He hears your prayers at night for your children and family. He sees children and he hears your prayers rising up from you at night and even if sometimes after you get finished praying you see a little smirk on your parents' face because your prayer is very cute. They know how serious that is, that prayer too. And your heavenly father does too and receives it is the prayer of one of his little children to him, and it's pleasing to him, it's lovely to him, it's beautiful to him. He sees singles, your home, if it's a faithful home, different from the homes of the unmarried in this world, the priorities that are there, the way you spend your time, the way you use the things that are given to you in that home. It's lovely, pleasing, in his sight. And who are these people who are in these homes, nothing in themselves, depraved in themselves, yet God has built a faithful home. This this most lovely and, and pleasing of things, a taste of heaven in the midst of this world there, In the midst of this wilderness where where no water is, he's gathered homes together and made them this. It's astounding. How could there even be something like this in the midst of this waste-howling wilderness? Well, how is it? How could Jacob's tents be goodly and how could Israel's tabernacles be lovely? How could there even be water flowing 
in the midst of the camp, in the middle of this desert where no water is. We could say four things here tonight in answer to that question. Number one, and very generally we can say it's only because of God himself. Verse six, which the Lord hath planted. Verse eight, God hath brought him forth out of Egypt. God has taken him out of the house of bondage and and planted his home in this water, this oasis, so that it would grow lush, vital to his glory. God has made this difference. Second, we could say God has done this by blessing these faithful covenant homes. Remember that Balaam is also declaring what is God's blessing upon his people. And remember that God's blessing is powerful. Your blessing isn't powerful. My blessing isn't powerful. But his is. Sometimes when somebody sneezes, we say, bless you. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a very kind, fine thing to say and polite. But nobody's under the impression, are they, that when they say that, they're actually producing a blessing upon that person, that whatever they're saying is actually accomplishing blessing in that person's life. But that's precisely what happens when God declares his blessings over his people. When he says, bless you, you are blessed. For his blessing is a power. When he says, homes, rise up in the midst of this world, lush, spiritual, with vitality and spirituality for my glory, then they rise up in the midst of this world. When God says, waters of grace flow to feed those homes in the midst of the camp as they are gathered together, then those waters flow blessing. Third, we can say that these blessings flow to God's people with whom he has established his covenant. They are covenant blessings. And since the lines of election and reprobation run through that covenant too, there is a discriminating aspect to the blessing. Notice that in verse 9, Balaam, totally unbeknownst to himself, repeats one of the blessings of the covenant over Israel, a promise, blessing that was given in Genesis chapter 12. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. That's Genesis 12 verse 3. Balaam has absolutely no idea that that's Genesis 12 verse 3, but that's what it is. He's declaring God's covenant blessings upon this people, that bond that he establishes in his sovereign mercy with his people, in which he gives glorious promises, promises that are powerful to accomplish what they promise, some of which have to do with home and family life, will be a God to you and to your seed after you, and accomplishes that. And then fourth, 
can say that all of these blessings flow forth from God's covenant that are powerful, earned by the King who is coming out of this Israel. A king who is higher than Agag. Verse 7, Balaam begins to prophesy about the future. In the first part of his prophecy, he's declaring over these people what is in real time. And then in verse 7, when he gives the reason for why this is, he starts to put everything in the future tense verbally. This is what's coming, and this is why this is, because this is what's coming, verse 7. In the future, Israel will have a king, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. What a prophecy to declare over this nomadic bunch of ex-slaves wandering in the wilderness who've never had a king before. A king higher than Agag himself. Agag was king of the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites? They attacked the Israelites on the way to the land of Canaan after they got water from the rock. The Amalekites represent all the spiritual forces that are against the people of God in the midst of this world, seeking their destruction. And Agag, as the king of those forces, is something of a picture of the Antichrist who is coming. But out of Israel will come a king greater, higher than Agag. Who's higher than Agag? Israel knows of no higher king. To be higher than Agag, you have to be God yourself. And that's it. God will come. And he will be born in the midst of Israel. And he will rise up in the midst of Israel as their king, a king like no other king. And he will mount a cross for a throne and he will have a crown of thorns for the crown upon his head and he will give himself a sacrifice for sin a king who takes the sins of his people upon himself even their sins in home life and bears them away upon his cross a king who rises from the dead victorious conqueror over sin death the grave and hell who ascends to the right hand of God and from that position pours out all of the blessings of the covenant upon his people. So that rivers flow, lushness and vitality grows in the homes of God's people. You have to ask at some point when you're reading this text, how does all this water get here? That Balaam sees this living water flowing through this setting of the camp of Israel in the middle of a desert. Where does this come from? And verse 7 gives us the answer. The king shall pour the water out of his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. The image is of a man carrying water like they did in the Bible times have a long pole went across their shoulders 
And on either end of that pole would be hanging a large wooden bucket. Fill the bucket with water, hook it on the end of the pole, carry the pole on their shoulders, and go their way. The king, says Balaam, is carrying this water. And then he takes his two mighty hands and places them under, one under each bucket. And he flips them over so that the water flows out of those buckets into the camp. He overturns his buckets so that his seed shall be in many waters. Isn't that what happens? every Lord's Day here in this camp. Is not Christ the King overturning his buckets Lord's Day after Lord's Day so that through the proclamation of his word as a means of grace flow these living waters to feed homes that they grow up spiritual vital to the glory of Jehovah God lovely pleasing to him a garden of faithful service to his name all this ought to encourage us beloved It ought to encourage us what the Lord sees in the homes of his people. It also ought to give us courage. So that even right now, as Christ the King overturns his buckets, and in this service, this water flows into the middle of the camp. The response is this. This is what I want in my home. This is what I want God to see when he looks down from above and scans the homes. I want him to see lushness and vitality and growth for his glory. And what do I need to repent of, therefore? And what needs to be different? What do I need to put away? And no, I don't care what everybody else does in their home, not, not in this home, because it would mar the loveliness, the beauty and the, and the pleasantness and the fragrance rising up to Jehovah God. And it would weaken the church. The result of this grace in Jesus Christ and all that he's earned in his cross flowing forth out of his buckets, his storehouse of what he's earned so that it flows becoming rivers of water, growing homes that are gardens of cedars and aloes. The result is that the church herself 
rises in spiritual strength in the midst of this world. Verse 7, his kingdom shall be exalted. Verses 8 and 9, he, Israel, hath as it were the strength of a unicorn or a wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, and as a great lion, who shall stir him up? Who even dares to attack him and stir him up? It's not only the case, beloved, that the setting of the church in which the homes dwell, this water-filled oasis, serves to strengthen the homes. It's also the case that the homes strengthened come together and become the strength of the church. So that she resists temptation, the devil flees from her as he is resisted. It's a symbiotic relationship, you see. The church is used to strengthen the homes, and the homes, in turn, strengthen the church. Israel is like this in the midst of this world. Never perfectly. With so much to mar it, to be sure. So much sin and weakness and trouble. One day, one lush garden, growing marvelously, fragrant, strong, to the glory of God as as the Lord Christ overturns his buckets and a waterfall of grace removes any sin, any evil, and any marring stain so that the whole body of Jesus Christ is one unto him forever lush to his glory. But in part now, and on the way there now, always in part to be sure, she's like this in spite of her sins and failures God makes her like this lovely pleasing beautiful to him her sin and stain covered in his sight blessed of him God give you grace wisdom, humility, and strength, and courage that you live together to his glory in your goodly tents. Amen. Father in heaven, bless thy word to our hearing. Strengthen our faith. and Strengthen our homes, Father, for thy own glory. For our good, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.